This is Real Talk, Real Solutions. I'm your host, Ginger Gadsden. This Black History Month, we are talking to two Florida women who made history, and we are so delighted to have them here with us. In 1964, Ingrid Burton Nathan became the first African-American student to integrate Seminole County Public Schools. She was just 14 years old at the time. And Dr. LaVon Bracey was the first and only African-American student to graduate from Gainesville High in 1965. We are so happy you ladies are here with us today. And this is actually the first time the two of you are meeting. So that has been a special time for, for us to be able to see that and be a fly on the wall and hear you guys share your stories. I'm gonna start with you, uh, Ms. Uh, Burton, uh, Nathan, and talk about what your experience was like in 1964 when you went to junior high. Okay, when I went there, uh, my father drove me there, and I was escorted by the police, this long uh, sidewalk. And I looked, and I saw the white people standing there in the door. And so I walked up, and the principal greeted me, and uh, the student body presidents and, uh, you know, the members of the student body, and everyone was smiling. And so they uh, they escorted me to my so different for your experience. <laughs> they escorted me to my classes, and um, they ate lunch with me the first day, you know. But that was it. The first day after that, I was on my own. Um, but um, my experience at Sanford Middle was one of just being on my own, alone. No, you know, not um, associating in groups little by little, sure, you know. Sure. But everybody pretty much. I guess they were watching me to see what I was going to do and watching me do what I, you know, do. Yeah. And uh, there was one young man that really intended to make my life miserable. He bothered me, um, you know, day after day, basically mm -hmm. saying things and stuff. And uh, But he never, things never got aggressive until I reached the high school the next year. But at Sanford Middle is pretty much, I was... But the, on my own. the night before you were scheduled to go to school, right, what happened? Right, right, right. See, we don't tell our parents everything that happens. And I received a phone call from a white lady the night before. And it was a threatening phone call. She told me not to go to the white school. Tell your parents you don't want to go to that white school. Don't you go to that white school tomorrow. And I said, yes, ma'am, I will. And I hung up the phone. And said nothing. I said nothing. I just nothing. went to bed. I really didn't consider it dangerous, but it, how did she get my number? How did she get that close to sure. to get my phone number? You know, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, all eyes were on you, yes. even if you didn't know that was the right. case at the time. Right. Now, Dr. Bracy, tell me a little bit about your experience, your senior year in 1965. Well, my experience was not as welcoming as yours. Uh, in 1964, um, the NAACP had to actually file a suit against Alachua County in order for them to integrate the school system because they refused to do so. So my dad had agreed to take three people, the 10th, the 11th, and the 12th graders, three of us that would be going to school, to school every day. And we were escorted by the police, one in front and one in back, when we got to the school, my dad had prayer with us, told us all to have a good day. Uh, the, ninth, the 10th grader went to her class, the 11th grader went to 
his class, and I proceeded to go to my class. And I was surrounded for, with about six students who said that we don't want you here and that uh, I needed to turn around and go somewhere else. And I proceeded to go uh, to the class. They spit on me, they called me the N-word, and said that if you stay here, this will be the worst year of your life because we'll make sure that you will have some memories that you will never forget. And, and they, they were true to their word. And they were true to their word. It was, in fact, the worst, worst year of my life. Uh, every day I got to school, there would be uh, snakes and, and rats and roaches under my seat, snacks, uh, snake attacks in the seat, so that uh, when I sat mm -hmm. down that, you know, I would have to immediately get up. They did all sorts of things to make my life so uncomfortable. And that's your first day. They made it known that you were not welcome. They there. made it known. That but they, where did you get the courage to go back daily? Well, you know, I knew that if I did not finish and I was not successful, that they would win and I would lose. And I just promised myself that you can't start anything that you don't finish. Mm. And it was every day I hated when it was time to get up. I hated when it was time to go to school. And I breathed every day when I made the day. Uh, so it was it was a terrible experience. Yeah, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about some of the terrible things that actually happened to you. But Ms. Uh, Nathan, your experience was a little bit different. I know on the first day they were welcoming, and then by the next day they just left you alone. Right. So it had to be somewhat of a lonely experience. Yes, right? I just. But my purpose <clears throat> wasn't there. I wasn't there to make lots of friends. You know. Although I'm, I've always been a friendly person by nature, mm -hmm. smiling all the time. Like my mother, my stepmother at the time, uh, Cleo Alexander Burton, told me, just look at them and smile. Mm -hmm. And I smiled all the time, and I was friendly. But, um, you know, in class, I work in a group. I work in the group work. I participate in class. I interact when I'm asked to interact. And so um, it was after school. My social life was after school. I wasn't disappointed by not having friends flock around me and want to mm -hmm. be my friend and invite me to their homes and all like this. It didn't happen, but uh, a few were civil, you know, to me, and a few sat with me at lunch yeah. during the year. They weren't the po most popular ones. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But they were very nice and friendly. You said at that something that when we were talking off camera, it was so interesting because I, I just wonder how a young girl of 14 gets the courage to, to go into something brand new. Mm -hmm. But you went into it with curiosity, almost like an investigative journalist, because you wanted to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. And you yes. wanted to know why they thought so differently of black people. Right, I did. I uh, When my daddy came home that night... Um, the biracial committee had met, and my my godfather, Dr. George Stark, the only black doctor probably in the county those days, he was on the biracial committee, and um, so they wanted somebody to integrate schools, and uh, it was pretty much the same ruling because Sanford had not integrated uh, since Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm -hmm. This is 1964, so uh, they, you know. My godfather asked my dad. My dad told my mom, my stepmom, and she said, absolutely not. 
because she was from Live Oak, Florida, where Willie James Howard was lynched, where Harry T. Moore was her first grade teacher. And she was in bed and she heard the bomb that went off that killed Harry T. Moore. Okay, my my parents buried Harry T. Moore. That's the funeral home, Burton's funeral home, buried him. Uh, after the bomb went off, so my so my she knew what was at stake. Yes, she did not want me to go, but um, he, Daddy left it up to me, and uh, he said, "Baby, how would you like to go to the white school?" I said, "Yeah," without thinking. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about whether I would lose friends or not, and I didn't think of, you know, what would happen. I just said yes because I was curious, like you said, um, and. Um, I was raised an only child, Mm -hmm. so I didn't let go of friends, and I didn't allow friends to let go of me. My friends, my classmates at Crooms, I didn't miss a beat. I went to every basketball game, every football game. I had a boyfriend there, so see. Okay, so you were were definitely going to hold on to your friends at Crooms. Okay. Okay. Whom I married, by the way. Sure, sure. Okay, that's good. Oh, my goodness. But, Dr. Bracey, your story is almost the polar opposite of that because you said your your black friends at the high school, or they thought that you thought you were too good because you were now going to the white school. Absolutely. I, I, I was in an island all by myself. I was totally isolated. When I would go to school, I had no one to say good morning, how are you, how are you doing, welcome. So there were 550 people in my class, I know, not one of them by name. And in terms of my black friends, because I was going down to the white school, they alienated me and said, well, you're over there with the white folks. You think you're better than us. Mm. So I was, I was totally alone by myself. And they had no idea how much suffering you were enduring. And, you know, there's a story that you tell about how one day there were five or six boys attacked you. Yeah, they attacked me. They... Um, I went up to them, and um, one of them says, I don't know you, and he proceeded to beat me, and then all of the others proceeded to beat me. I really thought that was going to be my last day on earth. And this was during the time that everybody was outside until the bell rang. When the bell rang, everybody saw me bleeding on the on the steps and no one stopped. No one helped you. Nobody. I was on the ground. But you went to the principal. I went to the principal. I waited till everybody got in. I stumbled in the principal's office. I was bleeding profusely. And I said to the principal I needed to call my dad. And the principal said, how do I know you didn't come to school like that? I didn't see anybody do anything to you. I don't know of any student that would do anything to you. And if by chance they did, you ought to know by now that we don't want you here. This is the principal saying this This is the principal to said to me. He said, so you need to go where you belong, and it's not at this school. So I asked the principal, can I use the telephone? And he says, uh, no, you can't use the phone. And this was you know, well before cell phones, and they had pay phones. So... I had to stumble across the street, go to a payphone, put a dime in the payphone, and ask my dad to come and pick me up because I was bleeding so badly. And he took me to the only black doctor uh, in uh, Gainesville at that time. And so 
Uh, Dr. Banks uh, worked with me and put stitches. I have stitches from the front to the back of my head from that experience. And uh, But so, you still went back to school. Yeah, I went home after that. <laughs> I told my dad, I said, Dad, you know, I, I don't think I can make it going back. And he said, you don't ever have to go back. And I stayed home about four or five days. And I said, Dad, take me back to school. And he says, I thought you weren't going back. I said, but you know, if I don't go back, they win. I just can't afford to let them win. So if they're going to kill me, they just have to kill me because I'm going back. And Dr. Bracey, where does that come from? Well, you know, I... My dad always told us there has to be something that you're willing to die for. And even as young as I was then, I says, I have to accomplish what I have started. Um, because if I don't, there's so many others that are going to come behind me mm. that need me to be successful so that they know when they are confronted with I, things such as I was that they too can succeed. Yes, it it really it, it is stunning the courage and the bravery that the two of you women showed as such young people, and you know it, during that time it was the height of the civil rights movement. Everyone knew of Dr. King's name nationally, right. but there were so many people like you doing the work in local communities that had to be done. You weren't seeking the spotlight, no. and I know. Uh, by the time you went to, to high school in 1965, it was 1963, Dr. King did his I Have a Dream speech. Correct. How aware of you were you of Dr. King's speech and what he was doing? I was very aware. My dad was president of the NAACP. So my, my household was extremely aware of everything that was happening around the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, those were the times you had the dinner table, and my dad would lecture us about what we needed to know and how blacks were being mm. treated and how we, my parents raised me to believe that I was just as good as anybody else. My mom mm. was a reading teacher, my dad was a, a, a minister, and he, he wanted us to know that there is absolutely nothing in this world you cannot accomplish. You, are the, you can be the best of everything. So I, I did not go there feeling that I was inferior at all mm -hmm. because I just knew based on how I was being raised that, you know, if anything, I was better than them. I definitely uh, didn't feel that I was at the bottom. Sure, sure. And I feel like your household was the was the same way, Ms. Burton. Yes. I remember one incident when I was... I, I was probably three or four years old, had to be three or four because my, my mother was still alive. Uh, they had a typewriter and I put the paper in and I just went to typing, I think maybe two or three. And I pulled it out and I said, read this. And my mother read it. My name is Ingrid Burton. I am three years old. I said, I, I typed that? Did I type that? They said, yes, you did. I said, give it here. I put it back in, and I went to type in some more. <laughs> and I said, now read that. And they kept reading things to me, and they made me feel like I was smart. They told me I was smart. I, I had to be smart. So when I went to school, I had to be smart, smart in school. So yeah. I worked, but it actually worked. I worked hard. And like, um, you know, it was just in me. And my dad, anytime he, I got, he got my report card, I showed him, he said, this is fine, baby. Just make the B's, C's, 
and the uh, just make the C's B's and the B's <laughs> A's. That's what he said. Yeah, he said that, and that's all he did. And my dad loved me to death. He just smiled at me, hugged me every day. I had to sit on his lap, and he would hug me and oh said, "I love you, by Jing, by Jingles." That was his say, "By Jingles, by James, I love you." And his love and concern for me that pushed me through. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it so important that, because I, I believe it is, it is imperative that we hear your stories, both of your stories now, because you may not like being called living legends, but you are. And when we think of something that happened where things were, were segregated and you changed that, you think that's something that happened hundreds of years ago, where in historical reference, it's a blink of an eye. Yes. Why is that so important for us to know that you women are here, you did that, and what should young people know and remember now? Well, you know, I, I wrote a book because I want young kids to know. I want them to know our history because unfortunately they will not read it in any books. Mm. And unless we write the books, they won't hear about it. Yeah. But I want kids to know that there, in fact, are sacrifices that yes. were made yes. in order for them to have the privileges that they have today. Mm -hmm. And if we don't tell those stories, nobody else will tell those stories. So I want them kids today to take advantage of every opportunity that they have because they have so many they have so many roadblocks that I had that they don't really have. Well you so, removed them. Yes. <laughs> so they don't have the roadblocks that I have. They don't and so success has to be the only option for them. And they need to know that. Uh, you know, they talk about bullying and what happened they didn't have anything compared to what, to was, what I went through. beyond bullying yes. you went through and, and you, know, so, you, you talk about your book and I, a brave little cookie cookie is your was your nickname yes Do they still call you cookie now yes okay. my, those who are real close to me <laughs> yeah, call me cookie yeah. yes. and you know and, and it's illustrated and it's written like a children's book yes but these are not childlike things that happen to you absolutely oh. not absolutely and so I want people to really know you know, that real things did happen oh that were just so distasteful, but we endured. We endured. Yeah. So they need to make sure that they endure yes. because they can, they can graduate from high school, they can graduate from college, and they can be whatever it is that they have had in their mind that they wanted to accomplish. It can be done. It can be done. As she so eloquently stated, you know, that's my same position. Uh, I want the children, uh, when I speak, I'm, I freely speak to groups and um, especially to children, young people of all ages, so that they understand the sacrifices that were made. Our lives were in danger. Yes. You know, it's just by the grace of God, I didn't go through what she went through because God knew if it happened in my city with my family, the step family, my, my mother's family, the Alexander family, mm -hmm. it would have been bad, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very bad. Had my classmates, the class of 68, any of the students at Crooms, had that happened to me at Seminole, Seminole would have been a war zone. It would have yeah. been bad it, yeah. had I told anyone anything that happened to me, but I didn't you say never a, said a word. never said a word. But my thing also is we can't speak to slaves. If we could speak to a slave today, 
what lessons could we learn and what could we, if they would tell us, I mean, real slaves, our own, from our own families, we can't trace our families. We can't speak to them. We don't know where, but she and I and people our age and older mm-hmm. are the closest thing to a slave because we experienced segregation. We lived it. It was real to us. White only, black only. You can't go here. You can't go. And she experienced the horror that I did yeah. not experience. Yeah. It was real. She lived it and not, not only. And survived it. Yeah. But we went into the education system, but people were suffering on many levels in many situations. There are many stories, but they survived anyway. We surv- And we opened the doors in education. But after we're gone, there will be no more witnesses to what happened. Which is why it's important that we have this conversation now so it's on the record, so yes. people will remember it and it will not be forgotten. Right. And it right. seems like as you know, time goes by and things get a little bit better. And I know this Black History Month, you will have something very special happen at the junior high school where they, they welcomed you. Yes, they did. They welcomed me there. Uh, they're going to de- dedicate building number two to me. They're putting my name on the building Wonderful. on February 16th. And uh, I'm really excited. I didn't think it would happen. Uh, I was told by members of the black community they were pushing for mm-hmm. it. It was nothing I advocated for. But um, my um, my good friend's husband, um, Kenneth Bentley, he went to every school board meeting and advocated for two things, black history and a school or a building or something be named for Ingrid Burton. <laughs> That's wonderful. That is fantastic. And so when they told me, I said, wow, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's, and especially you being an educator for 40-something years. Yeah. Um, I would say 38 because I taught in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Then okay. I taught in Seminole County, added up together, it's 38 years. Mm-hmm. Well, that is fantastic. Well, if you, you have a building that will be named in your honor, mm-hmm. you need an entire city <laughs> for what you endured. And I know it is hard oh for God. you to talk about it. And it, you say, it, it in all of your life, that year was the worst year. It still is. It, it still is. It still is the worst year because I know that Hate is a learned behavior. Yes. And when you talk about 15 and 16 and 17-year-olds that were so hateful and they would spend their time saying, how can we make her life a living hell? You had to know that they sat at somebody's table and somebody's parents would say, there is this black girl at your school. Make sure you do your part to make her life miserable, and they did. So, so it was a learned behavior. You, you just don't, I, you know, the only difference in us was the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the only difference. Right. So you have formed a hate of me because of the color of this, my skin that I can do nothing about because that's, what, that's, that's the way born. God made me. Yeah. And so as a result of that, they showed how hateful that they could be. It's just stunning. It it's, really is it, it stunning. Really is. But yet, some of those people continue to invite you back to reunions. Tell me about that. Yes, they had a 25 and a 50 and a 55 uh, reunion. 
And when they had the 25, my mom was still alive. I was living in Philadelphia. And she says, oh, your classmates want you to come. They will fly you in. They will give you a hotel. They'll do anything. And mom says, well, maybe you need to come. And I just thought about it. And all I could see is where I was sitting in that class. And under my seat, I could see those snakes. And, mm. and I could see those rats and roaches that they put. And I could see those nails in the seat. And I said, Mom, I just cannot do it. I cannot do it. So when it came to the 50th, they all found my email address. And they had this email uh, exchange and saying, we want you to come. Please come. And I talked to my, I went to my husband's uh, 50th reunion in Jacksonville. And he went to Stanton High School. And I saw... He didn't sit down to eat. He was so excited mm. about all of his mm -hmm. classmates. They hugged. They, they had such a wonderful experience. And I said, what would I do at my 50th? There were 550 people. I know no one by name. But they all know you. They all knew me, but I did not know them. I did not even know the name of the people who beat me up. So why would I go? What would I do? And what would I say? So I just, I just couldn't do it. I mean, the hurt, the pain, yeah. I just couldn't do it. Can I ask you now, what would you say to them? You know, I have thought about that. And I would say to them that I certainly hope that they do not still exhibit that kind of hate that they did in 1965. Because the world would be so much better if we could know how to love each other mm -hmm. and how to respect each other and how to appreciate our differences, but at the same time understand that people are different and respect them for who they are. I would say that to them if I had that opportunity. Well, I think they probably will see some of this. I, I hope they do. I want to read something that you put on the cover of your book. It says, bravery is standing up for what you believe is right. Bravery is standing up for change even when you stand alone. Whether it's in school, among friends, in your neighborhood, or even situations within your family, I hope you'll always remember this story. I hope you'll always remember that change comes when bravery is present. I hope you'll always be brave. What can we do as a society now to be brave? Well, number one, I still believe we have to stand up for what is right. Even if we're standing up alone. And I think that that is something that every individual needs to really look at right today. Things that are happening in 2022, we need to be able to stand up for what is right. In the great state of Florida, we have so much that is happening that is so divisive right now. Mm -hmm. And those of us who know better ought to do better and ought to say something. And it takes bravery to do that. It takes bravery to go and say that what you're doing is not right. You're trying to disenfranchise a group of people and it's not right. 
And you, it takes a brave person to do that. A brave person. Well, I, I would have to say that the two of you are perhaps the two bravest women I have ever met. And I am so thankful that you stood up and you did what you did because other children are now benefiting from your pain and suffering and your loneliness. And they are able to go to school wherever they want to go to school. So thank you for what you have done and thank you for what you have done. And I hope this conversation means that people will never forget what happened, how it happened, and how important it is and it was that you two stood up even if you did have to stand alone. Thank, Thank you. you so much for your time. You. I really Thank appreciate you. it. You're, you two are wonderful. Thank you. Well, this has been another edition of Real Talk, Real Solutions. I'm your host, Ginger Gadsden. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. We'll see you next time.